The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored and delighted to welcome my guest. He's been on the show before, and he's back, Dr. Michael Carolan. He is a professor of sociology and the Associate Dean for Research for the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. He is the author of The Real Cost of Cheap Food, The Sociology of Food and Agriculture, Reclaiming Food Security and Cheaponomics, The High Cost of Low Prices, among other books. He is also co-editor for the Journal of Rural Studies, and he has published more than 150 peer-reviewed articles and chapters. I am sitting here with his latest book, which is a real treasure. The title is No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise. Welcome, Dr. Carolyn. It is a pleasure to have you back with me. Thanks, Melinda. It's it's nice to be back, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I have to ask you first and foremost, what led to your writing this book? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think there's two pieces to that, if I were to reflect back on why I read it. One is, I've seen a lot of books out there that deal with food, and I know the food market for books is really quite populated, but often one model is to focus on one commodity. And even those that try to take a more holistic approach, I've never really felt like it it really accurately depicted the food system or a term that I refer to as foodscape, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about Mm -hmm. later in this conversation. (laughs) And so I wanted to paint that larger picture, specifically kind of pushing against sometimes the image of a food system or foodscape that's reduced to a, a commodity chain or a value chain where it starts with farmers and goes with producers. And I wanted to emphasize the point that there's so many other people out there that populate our food worlds, which is kind of part of the reason why I called it No One Eats Alone. It's to play on this idea that there's so many people that are part of our food worlds. And so that can go from not only who we typically think of, which are farmers, retailers, and consumers, But people such as the individual I interviewed in China who was heading a a vitamin manufacturing plant that's Mm -hmm. responsible for producing all of the industrialized vitamin C or most of the industrialized vitamin C in the world that goes into fortifying our foods to the gentleman who showed me what looked like a paint deck where you could order the flesh of your salmon based upon the type of feed that this gentleman could feed the salmon. So it's a order your color salmon scenario. And there's there's all these stories out there about all these curious ways in which we engage with in, in unusual ways our food. And I wanted to be able to tell those stories. And I also wanted to inject a bit of my knowledge as a social scientist into talking about things like behavioral change and community and conviviality and, and stuff like that that's important to me as a professional and practicing sociologist. Mm-hmm. It's so refreshing to hear from a sociologist's perspective, because I think so often, and you talk about dietitians in the book, and we don't need more nutrition education. I think most of us understand what we should be eating, largely. 
But there are all of these other pieces and players in the way, and I love the way you hone in on those, as only a sociologist can. I want to ask you, though, I was totally entertained by this book, but who did you write this book for? Well, I usually start by writing my books for my students, because Mm. a lot of the impetus behind my books are my students just are such a source of wonderful questions, and they look to their instructors as the experts, and we're not. And so this is kind of a culmination in some respects of questions that students, and in more general terms, just the public, have asked me as I travel around and interview people and give talks and talk to people. And so it's spurred on by some of those questions that intrigue me, and in wanting to answer them myself, I guess in some sense I'm responding to all these other questions that I've encountered over the years that I wasn't really able to answer when they was first presented with it. And I can't claim to say I have anywhere near all the answers at all, but this is a learning process in food, which is why food is such an interesting topic for scholarship and that it touches on everything and everybody has a connection to food. Everyone's in some ways an expert on food because we're so intimately familiar with it that it's just one of those amazing topics that it's fun to to discuss and to talk about with others because everybody has an opinion and everybody has an experience with food and it makes it very meaningful to, to have these conversations because we're so closely connected to it. Exactly. Well, I want to start on page one of this book, the introduction, and you write, Every meal, whether enjoyed around the family dinner table or scarfed down over a keyboard, is connected to a multitude of people. The question that I struggle with is how do we get eaters to care about the multitude of people that are connected to their food? It's easier not to know in many cases. Yeah, so... I kind of take issue with some of the, well, it might sound as if I'm hostile to nutritional literacy campaigns. I'm certainly not. But I do point out that I don't know of anyone that doesn't know that eating a Twinkie or deep fat fried cheese curds are bad for you. And yet we all still have those moments where we consume foods like that. And often we consume those types of foods at levels that have a negative health effects. And and yet we know that they're they're bad for us. And so I do try to unpack that question of if it's not just about knowledge deficiencies, what is it? And I try to tell, a, it's a somewhat elaborate story and a layered story because there isn't unfortunately a one-size-fits-all answer to that. And I know we have a tendency in our culture for one-size-fits-all answers, which are, you know, one one one-size-fits-all answer. It has been kind of nutritional literacy campaigns. Let's just teach people about what foods are healthy and what foods are not. And I think part of the attraction to that solution is that it's apolitical, right? It's safe to say, rather than taking on big food or big ag, just saying, well, people need to be smarter so they can make better choices as consumers and yada, yada, yada. But I think it's important to talk about some also some of the power imbalances that exist in our food worlds. I think it's important to talk about the convivial nature and the role that that plays in our food. I get in conversations with economists often, and yes, price is important, but there's certainly far more than just economic reasons for why we do what we do and eat what we do. And I just want to give one example that I don't actually interrogate in the book, but it's one that I think about frequently. And that deals with the the craft beer phenomenon. I think that so nicely 
illustrates the conviviality that it motivates and animates why we drink and eat what we do. And so if you look at the craft beer phenomenon during the recession, craft beer was one of the few things where consumption of it actually increased. And it's one of these strange things. I've had so many conversations with farmers at farmers markets who can't understand why an individual would complain about spending $5, for example, for a dozen organic free-range eggs, for instance, and yet that night go and spend willingly 6 or 7 or $8 on a pint of beer, which they will consume in 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> right. And, and I, I think part of that does really lie upon some of these non-economic reasons for doing what we do. And I do know that the data show when it comes to craft beer that craft beer drinkers are far more likely to drink with others if you drink alone, statistically speaking, you're more likely to drink a macro brew. And so I think there are things that we don't fully appreciate and understand when it comes to looking at some of those non-economic motivators that animate our buying and consumption and eating habits. Right. Well, the idea of getting people to care about individuals in the food chain who are invisible you know, I'm thinking specifically of our sentiment that we hear about migrant farm workers, for example. I remember talking to another sociologist, you probably know him, Jose Garcia, who used to oh, be yes. at the University of Missouri. And he, I'll never forget, he said, you know, it's like we've got a big sign at the border. It says, keep out and welcome at the same time. So we're dependent on individuals to produce our food. And yet we don't treat them very well. And just being aware of the plight of a farm worker in our food choices, I think is important, but it's easier not to know some of the pain and angst that exist in our food system. Would you agree? Oh, I would agree completely. That's actually, I don't even, don't even know where to begin, Melinda, with, with that comment because you've touched on a number of points that are important to me professionally and personally, and also they're important as part of a, a narrative or a thread that goes through that book. I and mean, part of the reason why I talk about no one eats, use that phrase, no one eats alone. Mm. You know, just to, to take a step back and then move back into the food system, I've been really struck the last 12 months with the presidential elections and after the presidential elections and looking at some of the data that talk about our relationship with what we would refer to in the social sciences as the others, those the people that are different from us, that look and think different from us. And, and this notion that the society is, has become increasingly polarized certainly does seem to bear out when you look at some of the data that come out of the recent elections. I know in 97, we had roughly, well, I think exactly, if I remember right, 164 competitive districts in the House. And that number has since been reduced to only 72 districts. And I know a lot of people chalk that up to gerrymandering, that idea that incumbents can redraw the lines in their districts to favor the incumbent. But there has been a number of studies that have looked at that and have actually indicated that gerrymandering only explains a fraction of those competitive districts going away. What explains the majority of it is a phenomena that's being referred to as geographic sorting. And this idea that where we've been moving as a society over the last 10 or 15 years in the communities, in the neighborhoods where people are like us in terms of how we look, in terms of how we think, our, our communities are becoming more homogenous. And so I think this creates a strange 
polarizing effect where we live in these echo chambers where we're talking with individuals that think like ourselves and we're not really having an opportunity as much as we maybe used to to interact with people that are different from us. And so to bring this back to food, one of the things I talk about in this book that I have found really interesting when I look at some of these alternative food networks, local food, farmers markets, CSAs, producer and consumer co-ops, one thing that's really interesting that really hasn't been discussed is that these are also spaces where people that are different, if they're done right, if they're done intentionally, where people from different socioeconomic, different religious, different ethnic backgrounds have a chance to interact with each other. And the effects of that are actually really quite phenomenal and surprising in terms of reducing some of that social distance and, and enhancing empathy that we feel toward people from a different background. And I've actually been able to demonstrate with one study that I discussed in the book where I look at people where they entered into some of these spaces for the first time, farmers markets and community-supported agriculture schemes, and I interviewed them and talked to them. And then two years later, I interviewed and talked to them again, and I was actually able to do a longitudinal study to try to understand how, in part, these spaces, these encounters in these spaces, shaped how people thought about food and thought about people within their food worlds. And there is evidence that suggests that by creating opportunities to interact with people that are different from ourselves, that they actually engender a degree of empathy, which is something I think we were really lacking in society. And I think that's kind of, we're seeing that viscerally play out in the Charlottesville's of the world and other things like that, that's becoming quite scary. And I think that's, so that's, I think that's an element of, of some of these alternative food networks that don't get enough discussion. We talk about how they might create food access, create access to healthier foods, maybe how they might, from an economic development standpoint, afford communities certain things. But we really haven't discussed how they might, through engendering empathy, might actually improve social networks and the civicness of our society more generally. I need to take one break and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Michael Carolan. He is a professor of sociology and associate dean for research for the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University, and he is the author of the book we're talking about now, titled No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise. I am so glad, Dr. Carolan, that you mentioned the word empathy, because I feel personally and professionally, that if I can leave the world better in one way, it would be to inject more empathy. And I love that, again, I'm still in the very beginning of your book, even though I've got the whole thing marked up with questions. But on page two, you ask the question, how can a food be healthy if it exploits people and the environment in the process of producing it? Exactly my sentiment. The question, though, is, It's very difficult for, I'm I'm going to use the word consumer, even though I know that we need to shift from consumer to citizen eater, but for the citizen eater to identify the levels and amounts of exploitation in the food system because it is largely hidden by design. Yes, and so this is another kind of reason why I'm somewhat critical of things like focusing exclusively on things like nutritional literacy campaigns because they focus on individual motivators and individual health. And I think that stuff's incredibly important. But if we don't also balance that with other messages and narratives and strategies that cause people, lead people to look outward, 
I think that's really a, a missed opportunity. And and I talk about it in the book. There's there's what's known as extrinsic and intrinsic values. And extrinsic values are those that pull us inward. They concern things like social status and self-advancement. And we know from studies that people with deeply held extrinsic values are more likely to obsess over things like financial success and status and fame. While intrinsic values, they lead us outward about finding kind of worth and reward through and with other individuals. And, you know, there's been a lot of research that talks about how advertisers and food corporations, they tend to support through their advertisements extrinsic values. When I give a lecture on this, I show an ad campaign from a thin pretzel company. Their ad line is, you can never be too thin, dump the old bag, and they're showing an old bag of pretzels in it. And so I want us to think about how we can engender practices that cause us to look not just within ourselves about what's good for us and what's good for our families, but also think about practices that cause us to look outward, to think about what's good for our community, and to think about health in ways that go beyond just individual health, but community health, or what might be referred to in some avenues as, as one health. And that's kind of why I talked about those alternative food networks in interesting ways, because if they're done right, they can actually elicit an outward-looking orientation to the world where we can start thinking about not what's just good for me, but what's good for us, what's good for the community. When we think about health, we also are therefore thinking about community health, environmental sustainability, social justice. And that's what I'm really hopeful when I look at some of these practices that are occurring around the world that I document in this book, because they are causing people to look outward and not just inward, and that's hopeful for me. Getting back to that extrinsic value, you also gave the example of two school districts where in one the children were exposed to Channel 1 advertising, and in another community they were not. And you showed that the children who were exposed to mass media through the Channel 1 network were much more likely to have extrinsic values rather than intrinsic ones. And I think that that is a big wake-up call for parents to recognize what mass media does in terms of driving this constant demand for more and more products, never really filling us up or making us feel satisfied for the the things that we really need. Yes. And the the whole system is designed in some ways for that orientation, whether it's the advertisements or even just the idea of, of a consumer, which is why I push away against and kind of use the term foodscape, because I think the food system is become conflated with a value chain. And as I said, a value chain, it starts with farmers, ends with consumers. But as I talk about in the book, we are so much more than consumers. And when you're only a consumer, there's only so many ways in which you can change the world. You know, as a consumer, the only way you can change the world is by shopping your way to social change. And I think there's more than that. And there has to be. I mentioned in the book, there was an instance where I just walked into a 7-Eleven to see how many of their packaged snacks are manufactured by Pepsi-Cola. And, you know, Pepsi is one of the largest food manufacturers in the world. And I counted in this this behind the back of the envelope study, 70% of the food there was manufactured by Pepsi. So my point is, is that, sure, you might be able to choose between, say, a GMO-free Saltinas tortilla chip or MSG-free Doritos, but they're both owned by Pepsi. So, does it really matter if what you're buying, if in the end you're still supporting the same conventional commodity chains and the same two or three major processors? And so we really need to think more as citizens because once you think beyond the consumer, 
a whole world of levers and mechanisms opens up for real meaningful social change and not the the very narrow understanding of social change that kind of market-based democracies assume. I worry personally about the, we have this illusion of choice. You describe it in the book as, you know, going down the supermarket aisle, similar to your 7-Eleven experience and seeing, you know, how many gazillion brands of potato chips when really they're controlled by very few farms and producers. So how do we restore true choice? Right. Well, I don't want to diminish the importance of being intentional when you're in a grocery store in that sense. But I also want to make it really clear, and I have these conversations with my students, that you have to do more than just buy the quote-unquote right thing. I think it boils down to, to some degree, if you really want to change the foodscape or food system, you have to also think beyond just narrowly thinking about food and just get involved more broadly in civic life and in democratic politics more generally. Go out and go interact with somebody. Find a space where you can interact with somebody that looks and thinks different from yourself. Involve yourself in some of these alternative food networks like consumer cooperatives or if you're a producer, producer cooperatives, and try to increase their capacity and their resiliency because it's through some of these alternative networks, I think, where the most hope resides and the more capacity that's built, it creates more opportunities for others to follow in our footsteps. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really great idea for promoting a strong democracy. And I think many of us think that we are being better food citizens if we choose, say, local food. And I was intrigued, actually, by a statement that you have in the book. And you say, I'm no less critical of local food than I am of global commodity chains. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, there's a. <laughs> I, I get that a lot, but I mentioned <laughs> that. I mean, there's a couple reasons for saying that. One is more obvious. The more obvious response is, you know, local food, I can't see a value of local food in, say, the Phoenixes or Las Vegases of the world, where food really shouldn't be grown. And if, and if, if we wanted to be a local vore in Las Vegas, I guess you'd be eating cactuses and lizards or something like that. So, I mean, at one extreme, local just doesn't really make sense to be able to sustain a population the size of Phoenix. You're going to have to rely upon medium to long commodity chains. There's also been a lot of research that looks at local food, and local food is a nice way of xenophobic people saying that we don't want to be able to support farmers in another continent as well. So there are some more kind of darker undertones to local food that scholars have been able to pull out because it does have, in, in a few instances, attachments to xenophobia. But then also we have to realize that there's a lot of people all around the world, small shareholder peasant farmers, that have made the switch from their traditional commodities to cash commodities in order to, to sustain their livelihoods. And so they're a part of these large, long-distance commodity chains too. And if we're going to cut those off, we have to think about what happens to them as well. So I want to make sure that consumers understand that in cutting off long commodity chains, it impacts the very people I think that we really think ought to be, that are already being rolled over when it comes to industrialized ag too. And we have to be careful about what our actions do to them unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that certainly we don't want to give up coffee in the Midwest or in you know North America. But I remember being in my grocery store in the summer, a Kroger chain, and seeing peppers 
in the produce aisle from Canada. And I thought, now there's a, an example of something that should fall under the category of insanity because we certainly have plenty of peppers in the summer growing here in our environment. Why on earth would we be importing them from Canada? Yeah, you can walk through aisles. I've had people ask, why do we have milk that comes from Arizona when we have enormous farms along here and the Front Range dairy farms as well? And that just kind of points to some very strange market inefficiencies, for to, to put it very nicely, that exist due to policies and farm subsidies and in other investments that have been made that really distort what should be happening. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking about other concepts, and we just have a few minutes left, and it might not be fair for me to even bring this up, but I have to, and it has to do with biocultural diversity, lost agricultural and food knowledge, and the Green Revolution. And I wonder if you could give our listeners some food for thought about how we view the Green Revolution. Wow, yeah. All right, a couple minutes. Well, let me let me approach your question this way. So I mentioned in the book, I interviewed an individual from Kensington in outside of London. His name was Nick. I remember that, and he had spent a, a lifetime um, in the in the marketing business. And he mentions explicitly how in the seventies, one of his jobs was to get was to nick from people their knowledge on how to cook. And I, I found that really striking, and we talked more about what he meant by Nick, and he really, literally meant Nick as kind of a term to, of, of, to mean to kind of steal or take away. And that is something that's kind of happened with our industrial foodscape and how it has, has caused an eroding of knowledge in lots of ways. You see it all the time in agriculture where we're losing the ability to farm without chemicals, using the intimate, important local knowledge to do, do say, pest integration management and, and other things to build up soil fertility. We're seeing a loss of knowledge when it comes to the eater end in terms of, you know, who among us knows how to carve a turkey anymore? Who among us really knows how to to select the ripe cantaloupe? We know we're supposed to hit it, but we don't really know how it's supposed to sound. And actually in the book, I look back at some cookbooks from 100 years ago that talk about the color of the veins of a turkey neck should be if, if they're at their prime and things like yes. that. We've lost all that visceral knowledge. And I think it's to the detriment of these alternative food networks. And we have to think about that knowledge. That knowledge has to come back if those alternative food networks are going to survive. No one's going to we shouldn't expect people to pick fresh fruits and vegetables and prepare them if they don't know how to pick them and if they don't know how to prepare them. And so that knowledge piece is, is often neglected, too, when it comes to some of these things dealing with nutritional literacy. Mm. Well, my multiple pages of questions uh, will have to be put to rest because I am going to have to say that our time is up. I will oh. give you one chance to just leave our listeners with a charge. Yeah, go talk to somebody and interact with somebody who you never would have with whom you never would have before and who thinks and looks differently than you do and start a conversation and that's a good place to start as any over a meal i might add 
over a meal. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I want to thank our listeners so much for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Dr. Michael Carolyn, Professor of Sociology and Associate Dean for Research for the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University, and the author of a terrific new book titled No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise, It is not a huge book, but it is packed with food for thought. Thank you so much, Dr. Carolyn, for this incredibly important book. Thank you. I had a lot of fun.